Hello, and welcome to the second episode of the third season of SF Crossing the Gulf. I'm Karen Burnham. And I'm Karen Lord. And we are here today to talk about another movie. We are talking about Wrinkle in Time. We are talking about Wrinkle in Time because we loved it. We love the book. We love the movie. Uh, we're not un, you know, uncritical of it <laughs> in both the book and because... the movie forms. Because, come on, critical is still what we do. Right, absolutely. Uh, but we think it's absolutely worth talking about no matter what anybody else says. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> Sorry. The first thing I want to say is um, I'm actually terribly amused that in this day and age, this movie is considered a flop. Um, because in the whole context of what's supposed to be a blockbuster because it's a Disney movie and because there's certain expectations and because, of course, um, you know, it's Ava DuVernay and, and, you know, everybody's just got these huge expectations. The box office numbers are what suddenly make people say, well, you know, it, it, it underperformed. But let's look beyond the box office numbers a little bit because I saw a few comments in various reviews and so forth that said this has the potential to become the kind of cult classic that say never ending story was for us in our, in our time. Mm. And I think it's, it's worthwhile looking at a wrinkle in time in that kind of context, not did it come out and was it an instant hit, but is it going to, to, to lodge in the subconscious? Is it going to stay with us? Um, and I really do think it is going to do that. I think it does have that level of power. So um, I just wanted to give that overall context in terms of what, what is a successful movie? You know, is it something that gives you a whole bunch of money all at once? Or is it something that has staying power that people are going to reference, you know, 10, 20 years from now? But what's your take on that? Well, I agree, because I think there is going to be a rolling wave of young people, young girls in in particular, but I think young people in general who need this movie and who are going to find it and who are going to watch it over and over and over again and who mm -hmm. are going to tell their friends, you know, at that moment when it makes the most sense for them, they're going to tell their friends, hey, look at this. Mm -hmm. and, yes. and yeah, it's not, it's not, you know, in, in the five week period, right, that the box office is trying to make all its money, you're not going to hit every <laughs> single one of those people. But for the next five mm -hmm. years, the next 10 years, I think it's mm -hmm. going to find its people. Yes, yes. And what you and, said is very important because so often movies are trying to just like target so many demographics, um, demographic groups at once that um, they're almost a little too self-aware they're almost a little too you know the, the 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 adult humor is there mixed in with the child humor and and there's a place for that but you don't always want it so this is this is a kid's movie this is it a is. kid's movie and it's quite okay if there's some adults who are like i really don't get this or i really am not enjoying this um it's of a particular um and and it fits perfectly in terms of being um a taken from a novel which again is very unapologetically a book for children and a book for children going through a particular transition between child and adult well and if you don't mind my asking when did you first encounter wrinkle in time the book who let's see that would have been um definitely not primary school it would have been early secondary school so somewhere between 11 and 13 i'm quite sure 
because by the time I was in, by the time I was 16, I'd read at least three or four of them. So I think, <laughs> I think that, I think that probably the latest that I'd read it was probably 14. So I was, I was uh, sort of right in the sweet spot for that. But um, I read it and I think very quickly read the sequel. It was at, it was at the public library, the children's section of the public library. Um, mm-hmm. So, so wait a minute. That is, no, that can't be right. That can't be right. Because you graduated from the public library's children's section when you were 12 and you couldn't really go back. So I had to have read it at least in first form then between 11 and 12 because I don't think I read it in primary school. There you go. See, I had to work it out. Um, and why, why I remember that so clearly is that I was in the adult section desperately trying to find works by Madeleine Langle to like continue. <laughs> and, um, and I did find one. I did find one, which the, the title of which I forget, something about, um, the sun. I will, I will look it up later on. And it was interesting, but it, but it wasn't like purely speculative fiction. So I didn't feel that fulfilled. <laughs> um, okay. And then, and then I think when I went to, and this, this is a bit of a ramble, but it's important. When I went to the University of Toronto, um, the Merrill collection was right next to me, of course. And that mm-hmm. is now, that was then the Space Out Library. And that was when I went and found, um, like more versions, more, um, extent, more of that universe because I hadn't read some of the branch, branch related stories, the, the similar universe mm-hmm. stories. But I couldn't get into them as much. So for me, A Wrinkle in Time was like the, the big one. And, and the, then the, the kind of built, which to me was the most influential one for me, which was A Swiftly Tilting Planet. That was the one that oh, completely okay. yeah. cemented my love for St. Patrick's Breastplate, um, which of course <laughs> is like that whole, but you, you know what I'm talking about, but just for I do. listeners who don't know what I'm talking about, um, in Tara today, this fateful hour, place all heaven and its power. The sun with its um, brightness, um, snow, this whiteness, um, you know, sorry, I'm going to probably mess it up. But yeah, all that huge, like, sort of invocation, which is a druidic invocation, which then, of course, gets wrapped up in Christianity and becomes a hymn and a blessing and everything. Um, yeah, my, my attachment to that stems from that book. So I know of what I speak when I say that something may not be like a huge financial success, but it can really kind of just like dig into your experience of a particular stage in your life and and sort of be carried with you yeah sorry that was I mean, a little bit of a ramble <laughs> well and, and i'm gonna go off on my own experience that's similar but a little bit um i was a little bit younger and i ended in a slightly different place um so I first encountered it when I was, I believe, nine. I think it was fourth grade. And they actually, because when A Wrinkle in Time had won the Newbery Award, it was one of those oh. sort of approved books that had the sanction and was part of the official <laughs> curriculum. And so mm-hmm. they handed it to you and said, you know, read this book. And it mm-hmm. blew my mind when I was a nine-year-old. <laughs> like I had not, I mean, I had read fantasy. Um, my folks had mm-hmm. read uh, The Hobbit to me and Narnia and some other things. But this was the first time I encountered science fiction in a way. And of course, now as an adult, I, gr- I read it differently because I went back and reread it. But at the time, you know, this idea of, you know, stars and space and space time and a girl who is great at math and socially awkward and it it just, it all made sense and it just blew my mind. So I was, I, I know I was either eight or nine 
And then I, mm-hmm. I just, you know, I, like you say, you, you go to the public library and you just run through. <laughs> I like this. I want more of this. I'm going to go to the L section of fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And you run straight through it. And, you know, so I read all the books related to, to Meg, the, you know, the primary mm-hmm. character of Wrinkle in Time. And then I, I switched to some of the other YA books i read her mainstream ya books about the austins i read her uh uh speculative ya books and that branched mm-hmm. off into different parts of the family and i ended up writing an essay you had to apply to the advanced um literature you know sort of uh, humanities or english program in my high school you had to write an essay about a book that had particularly moved you mm. and i ended up writing about madeline lengel's um a ring of endless light Mm-hmm. Which is only vaguely speculative. Like it's just got a real hint of speculative element. Um but it to me at that moment I was thirteen, so eighth grade going on to ninth grade. Um you know, it was the most moving thing I had ever read. But I, I read mm-hmm. all her stuff and again I think I petered out um probably at the end of high school, early college, she wrote one of her last books, which is Troubling a Star, which goes back to one of the characters from this sequence, um, one of Meg's daughters, I think, Polly O'Keefe. Okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, um, and, and after that, I sort of tailed off. But yeah, mm-hmm. wrink- Wrinkle in Time, to me, when people ask me, what was your entry point to science fiction? Mm-hmm. Uh, Later on, I can point to Cordwainer Smith, my dad and, and I uh, particularly love Cordwainer Smith, but the first book that I remember falling in love with as science fiction for me was Wrinkle in Time. So when they announced that they were making a movie out of it, I was really nervous. <laughs> oh my goodness, so was I. So was I. And and I was nervous not only because, as you say, you have all these like attachments and memories and expectations, but because, let's face it, it was one one weird little book, wasn't it? It was. And when I went back and reread it, I was like, I don't know how they're going to do this. But this is it. You know, you're, you're really just, you're looking at it, you're kind of like, you kind of understand why it got as many rejections as it did. Because yeah. um, it doesn't, it doesn't look like anything of the time. It doesn't even really resemble anything people have done more recently. It's very much, um, I don't even want to use the word groundbreaking. Groundbreaking is, is just, it's just a sort of a useless thing. It's, it's, it's very unapologetic about saying, telling the story it wants to tell in the way that it wants to tell it. And why I appreciate the movie so much is that I feel that they had the same attitude. They were like, we're not going to smooth out the edges on this. We're not going to make this easy for anybody. We're not going to make this all recognizable in, in a format that people have seen 10,000 times over. We're going to keep the weirdness. We're going to keep the edge. We're going to keep, we're going to keep <laughs> the, what the heck is happening here? This about all of this. And, um, uh, yes, when you do that, you're going to, it's going to be Marmite. You're going to lose some people. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I think that's what it did. But if, that was what drew you to the book, that it was weird and unapologetically weird and just did what it had to do. Then the movie doing the same thing has actually made me feel like, yes, you did it. 
Well, and and that's my feeling is that the people, the kids who need this movie are going to get this movie. And that's why I think it's going to have some legs that it's yes. not all just going to be this first five weeks. It's going to be that, that there are kids who need to see what Meg went through. And the fact that Meg is now multiracial just mm-hmm. makes it easier for them to find her to for them to find her story. Now, let's talk about that a bit, because yeah. the whole thing is that the book is, is set in the 60s. That's about right. Early 60s, is it? Early 60s. Yeah, I think it was written in 1959, which the fact that I would have found it in the wow. late 80s and was like, hey, this speaks to me directly. Man, <laughs> not everyone can do that 30 years later. Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, so, so you have this nineteen um, late 1950s, basically. Um, thing yeah. because it's published then as we all know the way the business works it's probably written a little bit earlier especially if it went through all those rejections mm-hmm. and um and then you bring it into a movie which is basically um you know a 21st century movie and you have to think about how to translate everything so that it has if not necessarily the same meaning at least the same resonance and resonance is you have- perfect word yep yeah, and, and you got to make choices. You have to make choices because the things that are going to be possible then or upsetting then are completely not going to um, are going to be understood by this generation of children and, and do not completely translate into the present. So I'm going to mention a couple of things. First of all, the whole background that is hugely important is that Meg is as messed up as she is because her father's disappeared. Right. And the way it is in the book... Um, he's, he's off somewhere. Um, they, they keep going to the post office. The postmistress, you know, gives him these <laughs> significant looks because she knows no mail's been coming in. And, you know, it's, it's all, it's all kind of this very almost, um, small villagey kind of mentality where people are, are kind of talking and whispering about it. But it's mainly the idea of we haven't seen any mail, you know, clearly he's kind of gone off, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the whole postmistress thing in the present seems could, wonderfully quaint. Sorry, well, and if, I, if, I, if I could just interject, because that's going to come in a little bit later, uh, it's a very small town New England feel. And, mm-hmm. and I was okay, born yes, in a small town know. in New England <laughs> with, uh, with exactly know. that feel. So that's, that's uh-huh. again, and, and you're not wrong, it feels quaint. But here's a funny thing. You just mentioned that you know small town New England thing, but you also know the new movie setting. Which is sort of West Coast, um, um, kind of California, kind of modern times, isn't it? <laughs> I, it's funny. I I remember telling somebody that um, it, I okay, changing Meg from white to black. That yeah, okay, no problem. But when they changed the setting from rural New England, which is where I was born and sent, spent the first five years of my life to suburban what appeared to me to be Southern California, which is where I moved to when I was six. <laughs> that absolutely, I was like, wait, what? Like, that was when I got my whoa moment, because I'd literally made that same move. Um, now, I, I think it resonates well because it makes the the mirroring with Kamazots, um, mm-hmm. you know, much more impactful later in this story. But that was the one where I almost got thrown out. I was like, what? That's oh. not how it started. <laughs> you see, when you when you almost have too much attachment to an old story, where you're like, "How right, authentic exactly. is this going to be?" Yeah, 
And so we all we all have to like let go a little bit. And um so you know, there's as you say, there's 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 that complete change of environment. There's a complete change in in, in time um in, in era. So mm-hmm. so nobody's going down to the post office to look for anything. So we can't have right. this facilious <laughs> postmistress because people communicate by email. So then you have to make it more definite that he's disappeared. Not sort of like, oh, he was off working somewhere and now we don't get letters. But now the movie expands this whole thing where he's actually working um, like in or near the house. And you see him actually disappear. So that was a way that they expanded that. that I thought, wow, you know, in terms of stuff you have to add for visual effect or to, to, um, to make the movie more understandable to the modern era, this was really successful. Um, right, and instead of a, a gossipy postmistress, you now get the snarky teachers. Yep, mm-hmm. and and of course a, a little side order of um, the bullying um, the bullying teen students around you, because right. there is there is still that there's there's more of a, I think that the difference with the book is that you you get a general sense of oh you must do well at school. But it becomes more of a because we must be the perfect family thing. When you translate it to the movie in the modern time, then the pressure at school is more about fitting in as a teenager. So again, there's that kind of subtle shift. I mean, yes, um, Mrs. Murray still gets like that sort of pressure of just admit your husband's run off with somebody sort of thing. But it's not the same level as it would have been for the, for the late 50s. So you have to kind of almost like up the ante by giving Meg more stress at school trying to fit in. Does that make right, sense? Right, right. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. Should we talk a little bit at this point? Because one thing that the movie did brilliantly, I thought, that the book actually um, had had left very much as a sketch or left for the reader's imagination, they, they made the doctors Murray, Mr. and Mrs., mm-hmm. a partnership. Mm-hmm. So in, in the yes. book... Mrs. Murray is a biologist um, and has nothing to do with whatever her husband was doing as an astrophysicist or presumably an astrophysicist. In the movie, she's a quantum physicist. He's a cosmologist. She's dealing with the very small. He's dealing with the very huge. And Mm -hmm. they have somehow managed to merge their disciplines so both mm. personally, they fell in love, obviously, and then professionally, they have managed to merge their disciplines in some way that is, you know, sort of the holy grail, right, of, mm-hmm. of, of, uh, of modern physics, which is we have not yet figured out how to meld uh, quantum mechanics with general relativity in any way that makes sense. And it results in the same thing that drives the plot of the book and the movie, which is this ability to tesser, to to move at faster than light speed. Um, and that, that I, was some I, beautiful symmetry there. It was really well yeah, done. Yeah, I loved it. I loved that particular And done by two very, very strong actors. I have to commend them both, honestly. Um, Chris Pine and, and Google um, Batha Raw, whose name I may be mispronouncing, but we will check that. But um, <laughs> they they really managed, um, and I, I think sometimes in a movie that's supposed to be a children's movie, um, adult relationships don't always get how to put it. I either either they're like almost like a bit of a side joke, or they are almost um, played for stereotype. Mm-hmm. But 
there there it was it was done in a very uh, like down to earth and rich fashion because as you say the the whole the whole foundation of their relationship was the MacGuffin that drove the plot right so you almost felt like they were the whole framing device for the whole story and and i thought that was done really really well <clears throat> right and all the flashbacks to what they were doing as a pair as a couple and as a professional collaboration um you know when when chris pine was taking young meg and and being like looking it through the lab and going like look here here's sound and mm -hmm. here's how you can see sound mm -hmm. you know with, with a smart little kid the way you do and um and even when they're, you know, presenting to a, a big, you know, some kind of scientific conference and she starts out mm -hmm. very rational and then he comes <laughs> onto the stage like, and goes full hippie. <laughs> right, goes full, just absolute hippie and, and loses the audience and she, they go back to mm -hmm. the room and she's like, you have to bring them with you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Slow yes. down a sec. Mm -hmm. I, I, I love that scene, frankly. It was it was it was fantastic, and 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 I have to say that the the book had so much less actual science. I mean, there are things that are mentioned, <laughs> but the kind of they went into a lot more detail in the movie, and that's not usual, is it? Usually, usually no, the science is what gets moved out and cooked and kicked aside. But but they, <laughs> they they actually put some real structure to the science in the movie, which is which is again something I think that does make it quite special. And, and which makes sense because again, um, the difference between what we would have known for, um, the late, fi late fifties and what we expect for the 21st century. Um, you, you probably do have to up the ante a bit. Well, honestly, you know, absolutely. And, uh, and I think we've got a lot more leeway to do that with in a popular media than, than Langwell had in the 50s, just because, mm -hmm. you know, the popular understanding of cosmology, the popular understanding of, of quantum mechanics has come so far. Exactly. Uh, than, and we also have a, a, a sci-fi movie background as well, that even if mm -hmm. we don't know the real science, we have expectations of the, pop, the sort of the, the, the fictional science <laughs> that, right. that still shapes how we approach the movie. So, so yeah. But, so, but um, here's the thing. So, mm -hmm. so we've talked about Mr. and Mrs. Murray and how, how they, you know, actually improve the grounding of the story that we see in the movie. So let's talk about Meg because Meg mm. is the core of what this movie is in a way that is actually expanded compared to what the book was so Meg's i think we can all awesome. agree that meg is awesome yes awesome so awesome, awesome. awesome. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness so <clears throat> so the thing about meg and the age that meg is and something that i think gets forgotten when when some people write middle age, uh, middle age, I mean middle grade books, and also when some people pitch movies to that um, age group, is that you do not get a sort of a smooth transition, or 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 sort of a step by step transition from childhood to being an adult. Um, there, there are parents I've spoken to who are like, yes, you know, I have this child of mine, and and today he's seven, and yet and yesterday he was five and and um and you know bet, bet you next week now he's going to start acting like he's 15 there's this real kind of just like back and forth 
where sometimes there's a complete regression to being acting a lot younger than they are, and then there's this like leap forward into huge wisdom. So you get you get this real um wow, I mean it's whiplash. You can't you it's whiplash, you can't be static. You you really have you really have to play it in a, in, a, in an incredible way. So you you have her at the school and you know she's she's dealing with the, the with the girls not liking her and teasing her and then she snaps and she throws the ball into the girl's face. <laughs> I liked. I'm sorry, and um, yeah. and you know even even when she's like um, talking to to the to the principal to Mr. Jenkins, you know those those little touches. The conversation with Mr. Jenkins comes almost exactly from the book. And Mr. Jenkins is an interesting character, not only because you do see him in sequels where he plays a larger role, but because the movie as well expanded him a bit and allowed him to be mm-hmm. part of how they showed what the what the darkness was about. Right. Um, so so you, you got you got to see Meg doing this really interesting kind of um you know this is the confused place that I am. And then her arc in the movie isn't to become like amazing and spectacular and you know i now know all the answers at the end is to embrace who she is is to embrace her flaws and her faults and the ways that she fails and to find strength in that and to fight through anyway and and that's that's quite an amazing um i don't want to say message that sounds so preachy but (laughs) When you have so many movies that are about overcoming, that are about winning, that are about becoming better in some way, and this one was really about acceptance, in the, not in the sense of I'm an amazing person, in the sense of I am someone who is working across or in a bit of a mess, but I'm going to relax into that and see if I can get better. And then I think the, the, the thread that went through the movie that wasn't as clear in the book uh, I think they kind of gave a hint of it, but that was really played up in the movie is that when Meg first testers, she has a huge problem with it. Um, right. It, it makes her feel physically like, you know, it, it drains her. She's, she, she finds it really hard. She finds it almost painful. And, and, and the, the way people talk about her, it's almost like they keep saying to her, you know, you're fighting it. You just got to go with it, whatever, whatever. And she doesn't understand what they mean. And then, when the core of the movie comes and she has her triumph and she has to, to lead the way back home, she has to test her. Then there is this incredible visual oh, of, yeah. her, of her tessering, which is just like, um, to me, you know, if you want to look at a sort of the, the, the high point of the movie, to me that, that was the high point visual where, um, you know, Yes, in a way, that's her triumph, that's her winning, that's her et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it comes on the basis of having accepted her flaws and her faults and everything else. So there's there's an amazing paradox to that, isn't it? But yeah, the visual was incredible because you read the book and and they test her and it, they don't actually describe it a lot, do they? It's just no. I mean, a, Meg always describes it as as unpleasant until that last one. Um, but it's certainly mm-hmm. not as dramatized as it is in the film. Mm-hmm. And and I completely mm-hmm. agree. You basically, you know, they really dramatize that it's it's awful for her because she's fighting it. You know, the first mm-hmm. like two or three times and the fact that at the end um i forget who it is that says to her you do it 
and mm-hmm. she gets to own it. She gets to be the one that mm-hmm. tessers them back to earth. Mm-hmm. That's huge. And the visual, and you're absolutely right. The visual of it is stunning. And that's mm-hmm. one of the things that makes me think that even 10 years from now, there's going to be a 12 year old girl who, who mm-hmm. looks at this and says, that's <laughs> what I needed. Even though there's something that's scary and there's something that, that hurts right now, maybe mm-hmm. I can own it. Yes. And, and to me, that visual was the perfect visual of transcendence. Mm-hmm. In its almost literal sense, going beyond yourself while still being of, of yourself. And yes, I mean, I do think that to be able to envisage that as being a core part of the book, when the book barely even touches on it, is is something that I respect highly in anybody who's adapting a movie from the book. Absolutely. No, say in terms of the visuals, another good example of, you know, stuff that is in the book that we're so glad didn't translate directly onto the screen <laughs> was um in the book when they see it, it is a literal brain. We're talking about you It know, is literally squishy. a throbbing disembodied brain. Right? Yeah, it's which brain matter sort of sitting on a platform. Which work. would not have would, yeah, you know Even the that one uh pilot episode of Star Trek that didn't have Shatner playing Kirk and and they had like the throbbing brains it it barely worked (laughs) and that was in like 1964 it was not going to work now but you're absolutely right what they did in updating that so that the climactic scene happened inside what looks like a diseased brain with all the neurons branching yes, out synapses and everything so i mean you could you could sort of recognize what it was but it was so much scarier so much more eerie mm-hmm. so much more atmospheric you know it almost it looks like and hang on i hadn't even noticed this before but do you remember that bit where they got lost in the forest in the movie i do which had no color yeah. part in the book whatsoever and they're running out the forest None. but then when they're when when meg is inside the brain the brain is like a forest. It's, it's just uh, same. yeah. I only know I only now clued into that. <laughs> so I don't know if that was intentional or if it was just one of those happy accidents. But um, but I, I like that bit very much, where you you see okay. the brain as. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. I feel better about the forest scene now, <laughs> if it has some visual resonance with uh, the brain scene later because i didn't like the forest scene a lot <laughs> it, it did seem a bit shoehorned in but i excused shoe-horned. it for two for two reasons movies <laughs> especially disney movies have to hit their moments of oh my gosh things are exploding <clears throat> you know you, you kind of you know, i'm sorry you know what i'm talking about you know what i'm talking about it's, i do and, but... and this was this was not a movie where anybody had any um pyrotechnics um well sort of but you know no there was there was no there was it was not your your um your star wars or star trek or marvel movie where you could count on some bombs or gunplay or whatever to 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 set the adrenaline going so you had to have something happen and that's what happened there but the other reason why i thought it was important was that it um, it showed you a little bit about how Meg's mind worked because she saw very quickly yes. a way to get them out of the difficulty, but she knew she didn't have time to explain it. But then you also saw how Calvin 
um interacted with meg because she was all like do you trust me and he was like yeah you know and then you know she gets some of the difficulty and then there's this really cool bit where the underlying kind of theme in both the book and in the movie of course it's played up more in the movie is that she hates her hair and it's an issue in the book right. as well. The whole book, you know, she's got like half of it straight and half of it curly and nothing seems to work right. <laughs> right. But, um, but of course, in the movie, it's even a bigger deal because it's the whole question of if you're biracial and your hair isn't the so-called good hair um, and, you know, what do you do with it and so forth. And, and you know, there's this expectation that if you just were straightened it, it would, it would look so fashionable and what have you. So she hates her hair. And after they've got, he's got she's gotten them out of the trouble, she like goes and like wets her hair and puts it behind this lovely sleek little you know um little, little um afro puff thing yeah bun kind of thing yeah and he's like do you even know how amazing you are <laughs> it's just it's just like a nice little moment there where yes you know there's that moment of he said yes i trust you and she saves them but then on top of that she's like doing this moment of managing her hair after so much of the movie being about how she hates it. And then he just looks at her in complete adoration, you know. And I, I thought it was I thought it was just a nice little moment just for there. And and um I do want to talk about one of the visual, but soon we're gonna to have to talk about Calvin because Calvin unfortunately I think was one of those choices that got made that I regret but I understand. Okay, let's let's talk about the other visual and then we'll get to, into Calvin and Charles. Charles mm-hmm. Walls. Yes. Okay. So the so, other visual was Oh the planet Uriel. Oh now, man, that was so beautiful. I <laughs> I was surprised at how much I liked those flowers. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> when when Calvin fell and, and they all I, kind I of loved, rushed up um, and they saved him, I was like, You should have seen me in the cinema. I was I was like a little kid. You know? And <laughs> and it and it's it it you know, I look back and I'm like, wow. Karen, honestly, were you that impressed? I was. I'm sorry, I was. You know, but anyway. in the moment, absolutely. And and yeah. I also loved it was Mrs. What's It, right? That turns into, as opposed to the awkward looking centaur that is the classic wow. cover. Yeah. Again, oh, the choices you geez. make, which are such good choices. <laughs> the choices you make. They made a better choice. Mm-hmm. You still had a centaur-ish. Thing that let them fly and you still had flowers that saved them but mm-hmm. in a much more visually lovely way mm-hmm. and uh and and no everything about Uriel Uriel was just such a beautiful beautiful thing mm-hmm. it did leave out however the one not the one but one of the core um transcendent moments of the book Mm-hmm. And while we're talking how, about how well the movie is done, and it did well in so many choices, uh, one choice that I would have changed is that a transcendent moment for me in the book was the on Ural when they see the darkness and then they see a star sacrifice itself to the darkness. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes obvious that the Mrs. W's, especially Mrs. What's It and Mrs. Witch, um, were stars who had made that sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Who yes. are no longer stars and become somehow corporeal. Mm-hmm. It, yes. Is it science fictional? Well, <laughs> no, it's really more fantasy. But, mm-hmm. but that idea that there could be something so vast that then becomes something human. Mm-hmm. 
That meant a lot to me as a kid reading it. I understand a little bit why they didn't do that in the movie because it would have been so hard to explain. But so losing <laughs> that from that mm-hmm. was it, it. It you know I I missed it. And and I understand I understand why you missed it because in general they flattened out um, the, the misses quite a bit. They didn't go into any detail as to their true nature. They didn't right, really go into depth. Yeah, and and I again I understand the choice because you only got so much time, <laughs> and you only got so much time. <laughs> But, but and, um, and and to make up for it, you get Meg getting God's own motivational speech from Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> I mean, can oh you imagine okay, being I'm... Storm Reed, the actress playing Meg, uh, uh-huh. <laughs> and being on that green screen set with Oprah Winfrey telling you earnestly, you know, be a warrior. I I am going to I'm going to have to admit that there was a part of me watching that bit that thought okay this this is this is a this is a little much this is a little yeah they're trying a little hard but it still got me <laughs> right even in the midst of my attempting to be cynical at Oprah opening <laughs> I was like I am still got darn it <laughs> Um, and up to recently, I was motivating someone. I was like, "Be a warrior!" And I'm like, "Okay, darn it, it's, it's, it's sunken into my bones now." <laughs> so yes, you're quite right. You do have this additional. I mean, the book, um, the book cannot portray um, the speech. The speech of um, Mrs. Who in the book is is just um, a miracle of text. It, it can't right, be pronounced. Right. <laughs> she speaks very slowly right. because she's not really accustomed to communicating because she's not often on our plane or whatever. And you mm-hmm. know, you 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 just you just don't hire Oprah for that part and then say to her, "Yeah, you can't speak that <laughs> well." <laughs> you know, you're gonna let her talk, <laughs> and, right? And you give her words a certain weight. Which, in a way, they did have in the book because they were so slow and because people had to listen to her so carefully. Um, and, and oh, I do want to say, in terms of like just moments that charmed me, when they were on Uriel and, and, um, and Mrs. Who grows to that huge size and they're flying by and Charles Wallace just reaches out to caress her cheek. That was just so cute. It was, and that that absolutely replicated the the moment of the book. Yeah, it was just yeah. Anyway, so there you go. But yeah, so um, so they did again make choices with portraying them. Oh, we mentioned that um, Mrs. Witch, played by Mindy Kaling, who was um famous for speaking in quotations. The quotations were updated, which was important because there was some Greek in the yeah. book. There was Greek, like actual Greek, um, you know, alphabet Greek <laughs> pasted in because the text wasn't, of course, you know, desktop computer in those days. Um, so, you know, you, you didn't have, you still had a little bit of Shakespeare. I'm sure Shakespeare came in the movie once or twice, but you oh, had yeah, a lot yeah. more of, of Latin and Greek and Shakespeare and the usual 
um, shall we say, educational and cultural markers of the late 50s. So they completely mm-hmm. updated her vocabulary in terms of quotations and did really well for that, I thought, as well. Um, okay, so... So we, you know, we had the beautiful visuals. We had, you know, the 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 Mrs. W's, um, and and you know Meg and the Murrays and Calvin. The the one we haven't talked about yet is Charles Wallace. Now Calvin and Charles Wallace both are kind of interesting in the book. They're both quite different in the book in many ways. And Calvin, I think, suffered because. You, you can have more focus on characters in the book than you can't have in a movie. So the movie, he basically becomes Meg's cheerleader, which is cool. Exactly. Yep. She needs a cheerleader. Yeah, she and, needs somebody to tell her she's amazing, yeah, and that's fine. But yeah, in the it, book... If, if a character needs to sacrifice themselves, let it be Calvin. <laughs> yeah. But in the book, what is, what is absolutely fascinating to me is that Calvin and Charles Wallace are a lot, are a lot closer in the book. They have, they have a greater affinity. Right. And part of the reason is that, um, well, Calvin is, 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 is shown in the movie as somebody who is not doing well and is being yelled at by his father for not doing well. Um, Calvin in the book is like, you know, plays in the basketball team, really popular and whatever, and has a family that's really large and doesn't really care what his existence. So it's almost a complete right. opposite. You know, nobody's even checking for him. But Calvin is and i think the way i expressed it was he's a jock who's secretly a nerd so when he meets charles wallace when he meets the murrays as a family it's not just meg that he thinks is amazing he thinks they're all amazing because they speak his language you know yeah they're finally people on his wavelength yeah so there's this whole thing where it's like oh my goodness you guys, you don't know how, how good you have it here. You know, you don't understand how amazing yeah. this is. And, and then he talks to Charles Wallace like, like an equal. I mean, they, they have to, you know, go through a phase of getting to know each other, but he begins to talk to Charles Wallace as equal and they see each other as being the same. And Meg is not quite at their level. So it's funny because in the, the movie, in the book, right? In the book. Cause in the movie, it's like Calvin's just this ordinary guy who looks up to Meg. And in, in the book, Meg is in this weird place where like Charles Wallace is like this genius wonder kid. Um, Calvin is an undercover, <laughs> whatever he is, you know, <laughs> pretending to be a jock and, and doing popular stuff, but kind of neglected. And then the two major omissions in the movie, but again, I understand this, the twins, Sandy and Dennis. Right. They, totally they left wanted, out of the movie. Totally, totally understandable. Movie. Like Tom left Bombadil on... from, from Fellowship <laughs> <Yes>. of the Ring. <laughs> they are the Tom Bombadil, <laughs> yes. And, and, um, because they're really ordinary. They don't even really feature in the main trilogy. Um, Madeline and Uncle had to give them like a separate book all to themselves because they a always seem to have all to themselves. <laughs> because they always had the most ordinary life. And their argument was, well, we know, to, we know to fake normal, you know. Yeah, so they always go home well. Right, school. and Meg, why can't you fake normal as well as we do? Right. <laughs> exactly. So so there's this interesting thing where Meg is betwixt and between. She's not as genius, special, if misunderstood, as Charles Wallace. And she's not as ordinary and fitting in as Sandy and Dennis. And she's very betwixt and between. And then even when she's traveling with Calvin and Charles Wallace, there is this idea that she shows flashes of being at their level, but it's still not quite there yet. So they they really kind of flip that a bit. You also have the situation, as I said, in both the movie and the book, Charles Wallace is the genius wonder kid. But 
in the book, he doesn't actually talk a lot except to his own family. So people outside the family think he's like developmentally delayed. They think he's actually, um, you know, has less intelligence, a lot less intelligence than he does because he doesn't really communicate. In the movie, he's incredibly chatty. <laughs> and, and so it's, it's almost the opposite. Now, I, I kind of understand again the choice that was made because in the book, Charles Wallace is, um, he's, he's Murray by blood, born into the family. In the movie, um, Charles Wallace is adopted, which was, I understand a choice they made because when they found the child out that they wanted, um, they were like, we're not going to pretend that, um, he is the offspring of, um, <laughs> you know, of, of, of this, this, these parents we've already cast because that would be pretty, pretty weird looking. We're, we're going to say that he is adopted, but you don't and want. And I'm still not 100%. I, I, I was worried about that. I will admit. Okay. I think in some respects it's strengthened than what Meg did because Meg was then about, I love my baby brother. And it was a very chosen love, which was even more powerful in some respects. So I think it succeeded on that level, even if they didn't intend for it intentionally to go that way. But, um, but yeah, so if you have a, an adopted child, who is like the genius wonder, wonder kid, it, it takes on a slightly different tone, doesn't it? It's almost like we adopted this quasi-alien into our family. And I'm almost glad they didn't go down that route where... That's his the route I was most worried about when I yeah. realized that they were saying he was adopted. It's like, wow, it really sounds like an alien abduction, a, <laughs> yes. adoption, like like Superman, right? Because Charles Wallace in the book is really weird, okay? He's like super weird. He is. He is much, he is much weirder in the book than in the movie. Exceedingly weird. So, <laughs> now that I have impressed upon you exactly how weird he was, um, why um, it... Regardless, even though in the movie he's given a more, shall we say, human character to play, or, or average character to play, he's still not an easy character to play because of the arc he goes through. He has to go right. from this supportive child who loves his sister to this entity taken over by it. And I have to say, in that respect, he did really well. So for, for me, the first half of the movie was the jarring bit where the Charles Wallace I was seeing was not the book Charles Wallace. So I had to come to terms with that. Yeah. But when he did the whole um, possessed by it kind of nasty kid, yeah, I, I, I believed him. <laughs> I believed he him totally nailed that part. <laughs> he nailed obnoxious so well. Yes, he did. And, um, and, and what I found fascinating, because just to tie that into the relationship between Kamazots and Charles Wallace... The, the book, the book has, um, Kamazot's more, shall we say, seducing Charles Wallace. Mm -hmm. Um, in both the book and the movie, Kamazot wants Charles Wallace because he's something special. Um, in the movie, again, it's a little more flattened out because it's just, oh yeah, he's a really intelligent. In the book, it's because, no, he's like really amazing, whatever he is. And. Yeah, he's almost supernaturally important. <laughs> yes. In the, in the books. But um, but in Kamazots, the way they get Charles Wallace is that Charles Wallace becomes persuaded that he has to risk opening his brain to it if he is to um, be able to save their father. 
Right. And and that gets really smoothed out in the movie completely. In the movie, it's almost I, like, hey, go on. Well, I I really liked so so if you, if you go beat by beat through once they get to Camazots, you know, there's the scene with the trees throwing things over the wall, and and you mm-hmm. point out exactly why that's important, so that Calvin learns to trust Meg and why that's important. Mm-hmm. Um. And then they do the ball bouncing scene, which is iconic. <laughs> yes. You can't. When I leave saw her in the trailer, I was like, yes. <laughs> Everybody uh-huh. was like, maybe this will be an okay movie because at least they have the ball bouncing scene. Mm-hmm. But the interesting thing is that they move from the ball bouncing scene directly to instead of a, a, a sort of 1984 brutalist office building. Mm-hmm. They move to a beach, a yes. beach with lots of people, beautiful people in in bathing suits and umbrellas and lots of color. But they do the same thing where, mm-hmm. hey, have some food. Meg, it, it, you know, brilliantly doesn't eat anything at all because she's <laughs> smart in the movie. <laughs> Calvin's like, hey, this tastes great. And Charles Wallace says, this tastes like sand. Mm-hmm. And the man with the red eyes who was yeah, a throwaway, almost throwaway character in the movie. I'm sorry, in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says, aha, Charles Wallace, you're so smart. You passed the test. You know, you, you're mm-hmm. too smart to be taken in by our tricks. Mm-hmm. Let's do the times table. Yeah. You know, twice one is two, twice two is four, twice twice three is six and charles wallace starts reciting and gets sucked in Mm -hmm. one of the big problems i have with the movie is that in the equivalent so i love the fact that it's a beach instead of an office milieu Mm -hmm. because in our society conformity is much less about the office and much more about the beach that's so so true it's more about the beauty and the instagram and the you know the leisure exactly yeah. right how does it look on facebook mm-hmm. becomes so much more of our how do we conform to our society than you know what's my job which would have been the more you know office building part of the book exactly so mm-hmm. i totally get that it's a brilliant choice um the one thing that i have a problem with is that the book took it one step further where in the book, when the man with the red eyes says, starts doing the times tables, Charles Wallace pushes back and he says, no, I'm not going to do the times tables. Mary has a little lamb. Mm-hmm. He starts doing something he deliberately not done. He mm-hmm. resists that part. And then Charles Wallace makes a deliberate choice and says, I need to find our father I'm going to risk going in because I think I can come back out. And it's a yes. moment of hubris. Yes. It's a complete moment of hubris mm-hmm. on Charles Wallace's part. And he loses. He mm-hmm. makes that bet and he loses. And it's Meg that has to go rescue him. Mm-hmm. In the movie, he gets sucked in by the first bid for you're, you're too smart for that. Yes. And, and I, I get it. I, mm-hmm. I get that you don't want to have to have two rounds of Charles Wallace um, <laughs> yeah. thing. Um, and, and Meg is still going to go and save him. Mm-hmm. But it was just that little bit more powerful that Charles held out a couple times and made the choice as opposed to getting sucked in. 
Well, the reason I think it was more powerful and also why it kind of had to stay in the book is because Charles Wallace was so much more special in the book. I mean, mm -hmm. in both book and movie, he's about four or five, right? Or five or six? Five, it, it's five in the book and six in the movie, if you do the math. Right. So when you think about it, there's so much that five-year-old Charles Wallace does in the book that you really kind of just have to look at it and say, no five-year-old does that, you know? Right, so, right. So it's, it's actually really, really hard um, to, to, to then sort of, shall we say, just sort of take down his actions a notch and think about, okay, what is a not-so-special child going to do when faced with this? You know, he's just going to go along with this because he's not going to see the danger. Because he's he's already he's well, already a very curious kid. It's not so. It, it's funny. It, it it's the difference between being a prodigy and being supernaturally a prodigy. Exactly. Because a very smart kid mm -hmm. is going to take that bait and and say, "Ha ha! I I passed your first test." And then when it comes to 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 reciting the times tables, it's not every six year old that can do the times tables. Right, they're going to be proud of that, and that's what sucks sucks in Charles Wallace in the movie. In okay. the book, he's supernaturally beyond that. Like he even fights off that temptation. Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. but again, um, I think other people have pointed out this this movie is whole in itself, whereas the books set up for the sequels. Yeah, I don't a... expect to see any movie sequels of this. And that actually makes a difference in how you how you make storytelling choices. And I think that if we think of the a wrinkle in time as being almost unfilmable, I can't even begin to wrap my head around what they would do with some of the sequels. <laughs> oh my god, a wind in the door! I can't. Right. So, so I, I think I think yeah, even when they no, took it on, they thanks. were like, you know what? What unfilmable book is enough for us right now? We're good. We'll just we'll just handle this one for now. So I, I think that You're right. You know, if you were ever to think of doing sequels, you would pretty much have to sit down and say, all right, you know, maybe a small miniseries um, could do it. <laughs> right, right. Where, where yeah, you Netflix. can draw Some people kind of in HBO bit by bit. Thing. Exactly. But you're not going to be able to do it in a bunch of movies. I mean, it's it's just a completely different, not just a completely different kind of story, but even a completely different... Um, structure of storytelling in some ways yeah completely yeah. different maybe is a little bit of an exaggeration but i remember having the feeling i mean we kept saying oh this is a weird book or oh, this is a weird movie the weirdness doesn't just come from the, the nuance and the themes are dealing with and everything like that because you can get that in a, in a very traditionally structured book or movie as well it honestly comes from a feeling of um you're not detecting the usual familiar signposts. You're not detecting the usual familiar, oh, it's going to turn in this direction. So, um, you know, like, like I said, Meg's arc not being that she um, automatically becomes a better person, but that she understands herself better and embraces that, embraces who she is. Um, you know, they're, they're, just, they're just aspects of it that fly counter to the conventional wisdom of this is the kind of tale we're going to present to um, children of a certain age or this is the kind of movie we're going to show to them. And I'm relieved about that 
because we can have too much of the same thing, especially when it comes to media targeted to children. In the book, um, between when they rescue Mr. Murray and when Meg goes back to rescue Charles Wallace, uh, you have the planet with Aunt Beast. Oh, and yes. <laughs> that that gets left that gets more or less left out in the movie, and that's I uh, I could go either way on that. I understand why they left it out, but mm. on the edge of Camelot, you get the same thing where the the Mrs. Ws give Charles and Meg and Calvin gifts, mm-hmm. and you know they 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 tell Meg, you know, I give you the gift of your faults, and mm-hmm. and that's super important moment they also give meg some glasses (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. um in the book the glasses sort of almost magically let her uh see where transport through right through the boundaries between Mm -hmm. where charles wallace is in its brain and where mr murray is holding out against its brain Mm -hmm. in the movie and I think this is actually a ton more powerful. Mm-hmm. Uh, Meg uses the glasses in that same scene. Mm-hmm. She grasps the structure, the underlying structure of what's around her. Yes. She takes the glasses off. Yes. <laughs> and she's like, oh, now I get it. This mm-hmm. is here and that's actually there. And this is how these things interrelate. And she moves herself. Mm-hmm. Without the glasses at all, to from where Charles Wallace is to where Mr. Murray is. Mm, and yes. Calvin's just kind of looking at her like, what the heck? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and she's yes. like, no, it all makes sense now. Mm-hmm. She took that seed and grew it herself. Yes. And it's a beautiful visual, it's a beautiful statement of what Meg can do that's special compared to what... Charles Wallace and Calvin can do. Mm-hmm. And if you if you go back to the earlier point that you were making about, you know, in the book, Calvin has a little bit more resonance with Charles Wallace sometimes than Meg does. Mm-hmm. In, in the book, you could say that you need both Meg with the science and the and and the math, and Calvin with his. And even Charles Wallace says it in the beginning of the movie. We need someone with diplomacy. You know, we need someone with with English skills and communication skills. Uh, you you need both Meg with the math and science, and Calvin with the language and diplomacy to come together to get where Charles Wallace is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's kind that of funny because that all harks back to the Murray's relationship in some ways, isn't it? And it. It really does, and and it like it all synergizes a little bit better in that way. In in the movie, you like you say you flatten that out just a little bit. Where where Meg's science and math, like she gets it in a way that Calvin doesn't, and Charles doesn't even think they can do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Calvin doesn't kind of add to the effort in the same way, but mm-hmm. the way that Meg takes that scene mm-hmm. to be like, oh, now I get the structure behind everything. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. a scene that I think 
lot of kids are going to look at and be like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> now I get it. And, I, and The way I see the world is going to make sense someday. And do you know, now that you described that, I realize that it ties into two other things I think are important. One of them is the, the pivotal scene that we've already discussed, which is the, the final tesser, where she is completely in her element. And she does it not only flawlessly, but in a, in a way that's transcendent. But the other scene that I remember now is um, they did something interesting with the happy medium. The happy medium in the book is completely different. The, the completely whole, different. The whole visit is is like, you know, almost almost entirely changed. But when you when you look at the scene with the happy medium in the movie, and she's being encouraged to find balance. There's something about that. Finding balance, finding where is a place to stand, where is the place to go through, where is the place to move through. They're all connected. So it's about knowing who you are and then also knowing how you are, how are you, how you're journeying. It's very Heisenberg uncertainty principle, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, there is a little bit of that. Yep. <laughs> And I'm not sure how much Lengel would have put it in those terms, but I think, <laughs> again, as, as you say, it's a matter of bringing the world that she was in into the world that we're in. Mm -hmm. And uh, Everne, uh, Everne Duvernay has done that brilliantly. Yes. I am going to have that in my library. I am going to have the DVD of that or you know, on my computer or whatever, because I really think well, it's and worth it. My, my oldest is six and a half now. I think when he's eight, nine, or ten, I absolutely want to show him this movie. <laughs> I, I think this is a movie that he will get. And, mm. and you know, will he get the book first or the movie first? I don't know. But, but I think it's something that will resonate with today's kids as much as it resonated, you know, the movie will resonate today as much as the books resonated with us. And that, mm -hmm. to me, is the highest praise I can give it. Yes, yes, yes. It's, it's really not often you can say that, you know, they've really nailed it bringing a book to the screen. But I can say that for this movie, honestly. I was so satisfied. And, and yes, there were moments that I cried that I didn't expect to. But, um, but it, it the emotional payoff was so huge. It was. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, I can quibble with bits and choices that they made here, there, or the other. But I think for the kids that need to find the story, the mm -hmm. story is there for them. Yes. And, and that's, that's what you need. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's us talking about Wrinkle in Time. We are not exactly sure what we're going to talk about for our third episode for this season. <laughs> um, we've been talking a lot about movies. We talked about Black Panther and we talked about Wrinkle in Time. We think we're going to go back more to our sort of original remit of talking about international short fiction. But we haven't decided exactly what that is yet. Mm-hmm. And we don't regret having spoken about Black Panther and 
wrinkle in time because I think that those were in their own quite unique ways quite important moments in in um kind of speculative fiction um history for for 2018 but you know we are a podcast that started off with a lot of short fiction and it's what we're comfortable with well, and so it turns out that my role ha in particular has changed quite a bit. It looks like I'm going to be taking over one of the short fiction review columns for Locust Magazine in print uh, after the very sad passing of Gardner Duzois not too long ago. And so I'm going to be reading a lot of short fiction and... I think we're going to be finding some interesting short stories to talk about in the next few months. So we haven't totally decided yet, but whether we're talking about movies or short fiction, we uh, we hope that you've enjoyed what we've said so far and we'll listen to the next episodes in the future. Mm -hmm. And of course, we're going to give you, you know, any additional information and links, but do come and comment on the, the posts. Let us know if you have any requests. Let us know if there's anything of interest that you would be um, keen to hear us discuss or at least mention the podcast. We do like to have a little interaction and know that people are out there listening. Um, and, <laughs> and also, um, if if we are in this stage of being open, you know, anybody who wants to suggest something, say, hey, there's this, there's a short story I read or there's this author I know um, got this really cool concepts going on here or there. Yes, just, just let us know about it and we'll, we'll see what we can touch on. Absolutely. So that remains us. I'm Karen Burnham. And I'm Karen Lord. And this is SF Crossing the Gulf. <laughs>